नमस्ते एंड वेलकम आई एम जयनील दलाल एंड यू आर लिसनिंग टू द डिजाइन एम बी ए विच इज अ रियल लाइफ एम बी ए फॉर डिजाइनर्स यू विल लर्न हाउ टू लॉन्च साइड हसल एंड लेवल अप योर डिजाइन करियर फ्रॉम इंटरव्यूज विद रॉक स्टार डिजाइनर्स फोक्स थैंक यू सो मच for tuning in today let me tell you why i'm so excited about interviewing today's amazing guest om sutar so a couple of uh, months back i was on linkedin and going through it and i think i found om's article where he had published an article on medium where he talked about like he did a postmortem on his uh, failed startup squirrel like where he kind of like like it was so different because he kind of openly said that hey these are the things that went wrong what i would do differently and most importantly he put like a numerical amount on like hey why i spent or like you know like put this much money in and and waste it and why you shouldn't do it so that level of openness and transparency really attracted me and the fact that he's a designer so those things were like oh my god i got to reach out to him and i literally uh messaged him on linkedin sent him a dm and then you know we got on a call talked about it and then today we are here to do this interview oh super excited to have you oh and by the way now he is basically doing two awesome things he is basically in the daytime he's a director of product design at uh disco and then in the nighttime right he's also the ceo and co-founder of personify so he's doing two awesome things two jobs and he's killing it and we're going to find out how on earth he's managing to do all of this oh super excited to have you on the show my friend so glad to be here talking about that article it was so refreshing to see someone just like doing like a postmortem and you saying that hey i spent uh, over $80,000 in startup cost in my first failed startup now that you're doing this the second time around is it the same amount of cost or is it is it a bit different this time around very very different i don't think i uh, i could afford to make that that steep of a financial mistake uh two times in a row otherwise i wouldn't be learning right so yeah uh i think uh we're running a much leaner practice this time if we want to get into specifics probably a burn rate around 100 150 a month so that when we our our margins are so great that when we do take off it'll be very easy for us to have a a really good balance sheet i love that and if it's just like $100 a month let's say for one year or something it doesn't even take off to you it's not that big of a hit like just thinking financially like it's just 100 bucks a month and that we spend anyways on so many random things totally i think what it does is it allows you the freedom to explore founder market fit as well as product market fit at the same time and you don't have to feel like oh i'm going to run out of runway instead you build healthy milestones for yourself to say okay i need to give this version 6 months to pan out and these are the things i'm going to do if that doesn't work then i'm going to have to read and figure out the next pivot and that's like a really healthy way to incubate your idea and work on it and refine it until you really start hitting um the right number of customers and things where you feel like okay now i can inject more into the growth i love that you mentioned about product market fit which most people by now have have heard about it kind of know something about it there's so many articles and stuff about it what really piqued my interest is the founder market fit can you talk a little bit about that like what is that so i'm a designer i studied transportation and automotive design worked on everything from electric uh, scooters for inner city women to packaging to iot products to services and uh software right so probably established a network of uh design and product that's easy for me to access naturally so when i did squirrel i had to learn about the hr world i had to learn about you know other things that were outside of my domain 
my natural domain. And it took more work to build that network, to tap into it, to establish value. Those things are already ingrained. So like step one's already done when you have founder market fit. And it's much easier for you to move into step two, which is really about finding product market fit. And then can I go a step further and suggest uh, like a third category, like founder business fit, like different people are suited for different kinds of businesses. Like some people are naturally very good for, let's say a lifestyle business. Some people are really good at like bootstrap. Some people are really good like venture capital business. Do you think there's something like that? I think that's part of founder market fit actually, which is like the skills that you're naturally good at, the things that are your strengths and they give you energy, you can do them more than anyone else. You're super passionate about it. It doesn't feel like work. That's exactly what you're speaking to. So yes, it's not just about the network you bring, but it's also about like natural predisposition and strengths that you have. And I think the first time around when you did the the startup and now you're doing the second time around, do you feel like compelled to just go the venture capital route? Not at all, actually. With Squirrel, we we pitched to Goldman Sachs. We got on the, you know, into JCal's founder university. We were very close to securing VC funding, but we didn't make it. What happened, if you don't want me asking? Yeah, it was great. Everyone thought it was a really promising idea. It was a great product, but the revenue formula wasn't there. And because of that, we weren't able to scale the business and where everyone's was waiting for the next shoe to drop like when whoever is the first whale that you capture then will come in right that created a lot of misguiding expectations about like oh if i hold on a little bit longer if i do this a little bit longer if i take out a little bit more money i'll make it right instead what we're doing this time around is being self-sufficient and especially in this market let me making sure our margins are good making sure our burn rate is low, not expecting venture capitalism to come in and save the day or make the business all of a sudden make sense. Because in the past, especially not in this market, but even the VCs probably touted growth over everything. And that's just not the scene that we live in right now. So whether you're looking to have a VC funded company or not, I think the principle has to be look at your margins, watch your burn rate, and be really clever about how you spend the money whether it's yours or someone else's. And what's also insane about this is like talking about like, you know, burn rate and stability and all these things for you as an individual, like you also have a day job. You're doing this like startup on top of the day job. So you're definitely self-sufficient. So let's say it takes a while for Personify to kind of get the numbers that you want, maybe to say sustain you and your family. You don't have to project that burden on it yet because you have the day job. Yeah, absolutely. I can make smart decisions. And I think one of the funniest things about not going the VC route is if you ever want to pivot to it, you can actually show a healthy balance sheet and show that you're trustworthy with someone else's money because you're trustworthy with your own. And, you know, a lot of people like if you're listening, they'll be like, oh my God, man, like how did Ohm pull it off? Because a lot of times moonlighting is kind of like looked down upon at companies. They're like, don't do side projects, especially running a separate business is a whole different thing. How did you pull this off? Did you, did you tell your, uh, your leadership that, hey, I'm doing this or, or how did you tackle that? Absolutely. I would encourage everyone to be upfront about it, whether I was a Capital One or any other employer. I was uh, forthcoming with my first, my reporting manager, and then I was willing to sign any, you know, NDAs or disclosures or agreements that we need to review in order to make sure that there's no conflict of interest. But most of all, I think the thing that inspires most trust in this is that A, you never let your performance or your day job dwindle or be seen as being sacrificed for thing that you're doing in moonlighting. 
I think if you show that you have a clear way of how you kind of uh, firewall work stuff from moonlighting stuff, for example, not using the same computer and things like that, that gives your employer a lot of faith. Like this person is going about this in a mature way. I can see through. And But yeah, it is definitely reliant on being a high performer. If you're a low performer in moonlighting, it becomes a lot more difficult. I mean, I got to ask you this, man. Like I get the part about never letting your performance drop, but at the end of the day, um, like you're, you're a human being, like you've got a family that you're managing, like, I mean, taking care of on top of that, you cannot let your performance drop as director on top of that, you got the startup. So there could be some days or maybe they've already happened for you where everything is demanding hundred percent attention and you just cannot do it. So in that situation, I'm kind of curious, how do you, like you said, the number one primary thing, don't let your job performance drop down in that kind of situation. Yeah. So this question is about trade-offs and balancing these three worlds of personal life, professional life, both in startup and the day job, when I guess, you know, everything hits the ceiling on the same day. I think the hardest part about being a CEO is making decisions and making quick decisions and using your judgment and your time wisely. So this is actually a feature, not a bug of this kind of uh, approach and lifestyle is what it does is it trains you in uh, finding operating efficiencies when do you need to make decisions right away? When do you need to defer on decisions? When can you let that fire burn a little bit? And that makes your sensibility as a leader even sharper because you're always using this muscle. You're always using, you know, and sometimes, yeah, I do get decision fatigue and I need to sit down and just go for a walk or something. And I'll allow myself that. But and I didn't always have this right. I don't think, I think balance is a bad word uh, because that immediately like ascribes some this mindset that like everything has to be 50-50 all the time. That's not true. It's life doesn't work that way. When I was doing Squirrel, we had our first kid. I was sleeping four hours a night for about almost three years, right? And it was not sustainable. And my health took a toll. And like, I, those are things that I have to work on now. So I don't recommend doing that. To, but what I did do or managed to do is almost compact four or five years of learning into three years and really learn all kinds of things through the fire hose. And what that did is then help me renew my faith in my own abilities, but also in a new operating model that I could define for myself rather than one that I picked off the shelf from what others have recommended or said I should do. So now let's say if there is a situation in the family that requires your full attention and your a day job come doing a completely redesign. So there's already so much demand for your attention. And then there's obviously the stuff that you want to do in your startup. So now with that given wisdom, what would you do differently? Because it seems to me like you're not going to do the same thing as before, like just sleep three hours a night every day for the next three years. You're going to do something differently, right? Yeah. So like tactically, some things I did, I built a design system for myself so it I can move faster. Anything that I need to design or build, even conceptualization moves much faster. And it works in one player mode and works in multiplayer mode. All of that helps me. Another aspect is... I write a lot, so I have a ton of written resources in Notion that I go back in and revisit or use, like how did I navigate that contract or what did I pay for this here, things like that. That makes me, it has a multiplier effect because then even when I'm having conversations with yourself or someone else, I can recommend books, I can give you a review, and I can give you written content that's distilled down data into what I would hope is wisdom and generate that transaction of value and thought. That is a huge, huge asset in how I've been able to manage and do things differently. It's almost like your, not private, but like your private startup journal. 
It's a second brain. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love that. And then I think this time around, along with the design systems and all these things in place, you also have got an amazing co-founder, right? That you've known for a while. Mitesh is my childhood friend. He's a, an amazingly talented engineer. And we're both passionate about building things that people would want to actually use and uh, find value in. So we're aligned in our vision of the kind of things that we want to work on together. Hey, Mitesh, if you're listening to this, your boy Ohm is definitely repping you. So <laughs> Yes. That's right. <laughs> so there's already a lot of trust involved in this case, like, and because you've known each other since childhood, but in your previous one, when I was reading your memoir, it seemed like this level of trust that you have with Mitesh isn't, wasn't there in the first one. Would that be fair? Well, yeah. I mean, Mitesh was part of my first uh, startup, right? For the longest time. So we had to go through waves. Uh, first, I had some other uh, coworkers helping me and we were moonlighting on it together, but they had very different expectations as engineers and had been misinformed about like how much equity they should get for, you know, like the few hours that they've put in to create a prototype. They held the code base hostage. Then we went outsourcing and that worked for a while. They'll hold the code base hostage if they're not happy with their price or want a price increase, right? So after going through that two, three times, you learn very quickly what are the tools you have to, what is the leverage that you have? How can you build that agreement up front? And then when things go wrong, what's plan B, what's plan C? You plan to have contingencies in place. And I guess maybe another skill that gets better is like how one evaluates people they want to work with, like not just co-founders, but just like your partners that you want to work with together. That's definitely there, but I think folks over-index on how much they know people would translate into trust. You'd be surprised how many times, if you lean into that, like how many times you'll be disappointed. Because our own measure of calling bullshit as humans isn't really very accurate. So I can think back on how many times, oh, I thought that person might or a corner, that person's my advocate, that person is gonna be with me. And guess what? That advisor didn't work out. They didn't hold their weight. Or that engineer has a different mindset of themselves that I just didn't see initially. And what they said and who they are is very different. It isn't malicious, but it's just that tacit understanding is different from, you know, reality. So these kind of things get in the way of implicit expectations. And you have to learn to manage those expectations for yourself. But also, how do you reset the plane? How do you equalize the situation when people are not growing together, when they're not going in the same direction and, you know, folks are pulling you in different directions that maybe are not part of the vision or the journey that you wanted to take? The last part you said, like, folks eventually pull you in different directions, ask you to be a part of their vision or something. But then it seems like having done this a couple of times, you kind of know what to say yes and what to say no to. Like, I'm very intrigued by that. You know, a lot of times you have people pulling you in like, hey, join me on this project, do this for me. And there's a hesitation, there's a fear, like, oh my God, like FOMO, like I don't want to say no to it. But then how do I figure out like, yes, this is what I can say yes to and this is my thing and this is what I, what I say no to? Yeah, I think if you're building opinionated software, you have to stand for something. You have to have values or something that's grounding you. Same thing with the kind of work you want to do. It's very hard if you're not values-based to then figure out what you're anchoring yourself to other than like maybe money or circumstantial opportunities, right? And then you feel like you're kind of just like 
some people are just kind of like have these wavering careers because they're just going from one opportunity to the next. Nothing wrong with that. Good way to make a lot of money, but it's hard to then substantiate like what all of that's actually leading up to. So having some, just like we use Google Maps to kind of go from place A to place B, having some sort of like compass to navigate you from like opportunity A to opportunity B or help you filter down amongst all the possible opportunities. Exactly. So like when I'm building Personify, I can tell you very clearly all the things we will never be as much as what it actually hopefully should be. Now, going back to like the previous thread we talked about, I kind of see like how you build a trust with your employer and being upfront and upcoming that, hey, I'll make sure the performance doesn't go down and, and these all the things. But what would be the interest for the employer to hire you know, a design entrepreneur like you, like, wouldn't they want someone that is not even doing any side project or side hustle, let alone running a company on the side? Yeah, there's different employers that uh, have different values, right? I'm sure my approach isn't palatable to every employer and that's okay. But what I do believe is what the pandemics taught us is that there aren't actually the work version, the home version. There's only one version of you all day long. And compartmentalization, I believe, is a thing of the past. Not to say that you have to bring your whole self to work means being more authentic, because I think there's some crap loaded in that too. But what I do believe it is the value of all of this is every project, every little thing that I've done has helped made me a better designer at my day job. And I truly believe that. So for example, I had to figure out what an email drip campaign is and how to navigate myself around MailChimp or build a Slack integration and then how a link unfurls on Slack when you share it and how, what can I do formatting wise? All of that has directly led to firsthand knowledge that I can then help direct my team design experiences for that otherwise I would have never had. I can't tell you how many countless times as a, a designer in an embedded product organization, how that's helped me become an invaluable resource beyond just design. Like how, like meaning like, uh, especially like your collaboration with the product folks, how has the design entrepreneurship experience helped you? I can look at uh, our data analytics with the same level of scrutiny and understanding that my product partners can. I understand how to look at a balance sheet. I understand how to run a, a growth marketing drip campaign. You know, I understand what ROAS is and how we calculate that and how that leads to churn rates and improving LTV. So like the core business financial underpinnings and the revenue model and how that influences the incentives of our product organization's behaviors. Having a deep understanding of all these things helps me operate as a better design leader for my team and for my product organization. I think there are very few design leaders like you that really understand that numbers is that level of depth. I mean, I strongly feel that. Like it's almost like you understand the role of the PM completely having gone through the startup fundraising cycle and everything. Yeah, there's a lot of like empathy for the user in the design world, but there's not a lot of empathy for the business. And I don't think we have enough empathy for ourselves and our roles until we have that empathy for the business, right? Uh, because that's really the thing that's, producing our paychecks and things like that. And if we can have an impact on that and the way we create revenue, it's not just how, but like why and where uh, we can help build more ethical businesses, more human businesses, and really, you know, help an organization understand that optimizing for the business doesn't have to come at optimizing for the user. It doesn't have to be a zero sum calculation.
And articulating a lot of those conversations requires a deep understanding of how the business operates. I've been part of some design teams also in the past where the intention is to make this amazing presentation with beautiful interfaces, like, like, hey, we're proposing this redesign and stuff. But uh, very few people in the room, I mean, now that you're mentioning the level of depth that you're at, I don't think anyone that I recall in that room was even at that level of depth, like really understanding like, like the customer acquisition costs and all these things. It was just like, hey, this is a new design. And I think it's going to help our users solve these problems. But then what you're doing is you're going above and beyond. Like, hey, listen, I get this is our cost of acquisition and this design or this thing I'm proposing can actually directly tie into that metric. I think the value of design is increasing the velocity of test and learn in a product organization, right? So when I run a test of my Figma design in Maze, I already know which KPI, business KPI we're going to increase, right, with this. So if it's a feature for setting a goal or something like that, then I know that that is a retention strategy because then we're going to send a bunch of emails and create a tracker and drive users to come back and have visibility on how much progress they've made and come back and continue to, you know, take some actions until they've like achieved their goal. So all of these things are tied and they create a flywheel effect and that, that, that test and learn philosophy becomes then contagious because whether you're doing user research or a split test or things like that, it's something that you can invite the entire organization or team to experience together. And then they're like, oh, I learned this. Let's do that again. What if we do that? What if we do this? What if we change that? And then like all of a sudden, next thing you know, like before you ship anything, you have such a high degree of confidence and a common shared understanding of what you're doing and the sense of purpose that it galvanizes the team to then like every team in the organization operate in the same way. I was recently in like a, like a presentation where uh, we shared the research findings and we shared like the new mock-ups and, and just wireframes and we were excited. And the executive at the table then said, okay, this is awesome. And it could be presented to the C-level exec, but it's missing numbers. Like we need to have like, <laughs> like the butt was like, okay, but what is the business plan? Like, how is this going to like affect the business bottom line? And I don't think there was much emphasis on that at that stage yet. It's really, it falls between the cracks. And I would even say that it takes a lot of work for UX and research to figure out what's the most effective way to present actionable insights or recommendations from research in an effective way to a C-level to inspire that change. A lot of the times what happens is you do the presentation. It's a great presentation. It sits in a deck in Google Drive and then people forget about it, except for the, you know, like every few months somebody says, hey, so-and-so told me about this presentation you did. We're trying to do something similar. Can you share that with me? And you're like, yeah, sure. Okay. I feel sad that this is like all that work just like died. (laughs) Yeah. It's just archived. Yeah. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like like that slide deck or readout is just living somewhere on Teams or Slack, whatever you use. And that's it. Like, so then what was the point of doing all that research if there was no actionable insight that drove the business bottom line or something? Most of it just goes into a research cemetery, like RIP, put the tombstone on top of the Google slide, right? Like that's what happens. And because those insights are not seen as a living, like organizational memory, they're seen as a milestone that you're supposed to reach and this thing that you're supposed to do And then that artifact actually ends up being the goal rather than like what you do with those learnings being the goal. And that's about the commitment of a design team in a product org 
actually being embedded and like not being in the consulting model where you're just like throwing things over the fence and saying like, okay, I'm done. Peace out. It's more about like, okay, did we take that insight? Do we make some concepts around that? Do we test it? What was the feedback? How confident do we feel about user sentiment? Is it worth building out an A-B test? How did that A-B test perform? Oh, okay. Like 60% of users liked it. Who are those users? Does that tie to a persona? Okay, so now we know which personas over the course of this year we like over-indexed or underserved, right? And like that doesn't exist on most teams. And, and that's why we struggle to in tech to do things meaningfully to like personalize things. You just see people like launching features to say like, oh, member activity is low or user activity is low. What can we do as a quick experiment to increase user activity? And like that's the depth of the goal right there. I'm thinking about the first time you had your meeting with your product partners and they are like, you're like, yeah, you know, like, I think we can do this feature. It will affect the, the CAC this way, the customer acquisition costs. And I'm kind of wondering whenever you use one of those terms, they must be taken aback. Like, oh my God, like he gets it. Like he's one of us. Yeah. I mean, depending on the audience, it can be intimidating or it can also be invigorating in the sense that I think creative tension is not something we should shy away from. It's fun to have these like debates. And be like, I see this data this way. How did you make that inference? Like, you really think that's the bet that we should go after? How do you justify that? When have you seen that work before? You know, and it makes people like think critically and slow down to have that assessment rather than just like shipping things because we have to go fast and we've got to make our revenue and I want to make my bonus. And like, we just glaze over the actual like critical reasoning of things. The analogy that I have is like, well, I have a designer friend who also knows how to code. So whenever he has meeting with the engineers or dev, like they connect like, oh, you're one of us. You also know how to code. And immediately that because of that empathy, because they know like what it's like for them. So that builds empathy and trust. And somehow the project goes smoothly. And my bet is that when your product partners work with you, and they see that you're so grounded in the numbers or comfortable with the metrics and all these things, there's that level of respect and trust that just automatically gets formed, I would say. Sometimes. I think uh, it's a little bit more, um, I'll be more specific. I think never underestimate how narcissistic of a society we live in. Everybody wants to be seen. Everyone wants to see themselves and their values and their interests reflected in others in the conversations they have, things like that. So if I can use that to my advantage to further my own causes, so be it. <laughs> oh my God, man. You're just like spouting out wisdom of the vision. I mean, I seriously love our conversations, even live right now. And even see one of my favorite parts, like to be candid with you, is like, I love the convos that are had before the recording starts and after the recording stops. I mean, as much as like, I love the, the stuff that we're recording. I know there's always like some other things that are just said more openly. And then unfortunately, we live in a time where just everything cannot be set out openly. For sure. Which brings me um, to this thing I'm wondering, is there like a set of things that one should do before they get this itch to quit their company to pursue their own startup or something? Or is it just like, oh, I have this idea and let me just like, you know, like put in my notice and just jump and then start doing that. Do not quit your job. However much revenue you think is a goal to hit, like, hey, once we're at 10,000 a month, Annual monthly recurring revenue for six months, I'm going to quit my job. Don't even do that. Please don't do that. If you look at the state of SaaS companies specifically right now, the Bessemer Report or anything like that, it is a terrible time 
to be selling software. Especially if you're in software, don't think about that right now. Understand what the market is. The other thing is, it's never been easier to have an idea. It's never been easier to build something. So even those things are really a commodity. What isn't is creativity, depth in thought and and care, and then uh, rigorous testing to find that market fit, to find that willingness to pay, to find that loyal member base, to learn a bunch of new skills, like how does sales work? What does a sales motion look like? Why is B2B or B2B to C different from just straight to consumer? Or how much ad spend do I need to incur for building an app for it to reach like some threshold of number of visitors, downloads, users, whatever? Like there is so much to learn and understand there that is not really written, common, available knowledge that you're underestimating. So it's kind of like everything that's an overnight success when you look deeper, all of those things are 10-year stories. 10-year stories minimal. So you look at MailChimp, they didn't raise funding. They just sat around for the first two, three years trying to perfect their email tool, get a few customers, get it going. It was a grind. It wasn't until like 10 years or seven years that they were making like millions of dollars, right? Not an overnight thing. Same thing with Notion. Those two founders were sitting there noodling on the first version of Notion for two and a half years until it started hitting. This stuff is a grind. So if your focus is making money, don't do this. If your focus is to create value and to really build something that doesn't exist and should exist and you feel compelled, then do it and figure out the rest around it. But don't do it to quit your day job. Don't do an entrepreneurship because you're running away from something. It's not going to be the solution you want. And one of the things you had mentioned to me on this front, you know, we're just like prep call for this interview. You said there's a big issue with goal framing. Like people say, I want to be a director. I want to be an entrepreneur. Like they have all this like goal-based thing. Like, like I want to be this thing. And I want to ask you, what is wrong with that? Like that kind of like goal setting it is so easy for us to talk about outputs. It's so easy for us in human nature to talk about features. It's so difficult for us to talk about like the outcome that we're driving towards. And that's really fundamentally what's broken about the way most people think about goal setting. I had someone ask me like a year ago, I was like, hey, what's your five-year plan? Like, what do you want to be doing in your career? They're like, I want to be a director. <laughs> I'm like, cool. <laughs> How will your life be different? as a director than what you imagine today, right? What you're doing today. They weren't able to answer that question. They didn't take the time to understand how they want their life, that outcome to be different. They just knew that they had this aspiration or ambition to have a specific title. And I think that's that like feature mindset, right? Where it's like, if I have this, then I'm good. But like, how are you good? What's different? What can you do? What did you attain to get there? What kind of environment do you want to be? What do you want to do with that power? And that's what you realize is like everything that we like, all these goals that we set, the things that we want to do, these are all transactions, transactions with ourselves, transactions with our organization, transactions with the larger diaspora, maybe transactions with our family. And when you start thinking of it that way, the goals start changing. I'm having an epiphany moment, put myself on the spot and use my example. You said like the problem with feature-based thinking. So let's say I say that, hey, uh, oh, I've got like, I don't know, like 12,000 followers on LinkedIn. I want to get to 100,000 followers. And when I am doing this exercise, and I'm asking to myself, like, why do I want 100,000 followers? 
just like the director title, like, okay, 100,000 followers, why? And to be honest, like, aside from just like stereotypical coded answers, like, oh, you have a following and you can build a community around and all these things. There's really no answer. Like, like, I'm just blank. Like, I just don't have any answer at all. Like a meaningful answer that I can tell you face-to-face with like confidence that, hey, this is why I want to do it. It could be as simple as this, right? Like you want to increase your status on LinkedIn. You want to increase your reach. Your KPI is I want to increase it by 100,000. The KPI itself is not the goal. It's how you measure the goal. My honest thing is just more of like the ability to connect with other people. Like that's my KPI that I measure, which has honestly nothing to do with the the following and the downloads. It's just a byproduct, to be honest. I mean, sure, like one can over-optimize on it and proactively like, like there's things I can do. Like, for example, like as I was talking to you, there's so many things I can make like, you know, clickbaity thumbnail, like why research readouts fail. I mean, that's one of the things we talked about, but I can make a clickbaity thumbnail, like why research readouts fail absolutely from like a design art, like, you know, like maybe you might be cool with it. Some people may not be cool. I mean, that's a separate debate, but that's more of just like optimizing to make sure like there's, it goes viral and stuff. Do you see what I'm saying? But like for me personally, what I find value is, wow, I found Ohm's work. I'm inspired by it. I got to chat with him. And now that I know his goals, I want to figure out how I can help with that. So that last piece, like figuring out how I can be of service to you, that is what drives me the most. Like being a super connector, like more than the, the following and the video. I'm sure you would love it if this went viral and got like a, like a million views. But I'm just saying, like for me personally, individually, that part is what I drive the most passion from. Like, hey, these are Ohm's goal and I'm going to be in the lookout for the next the rest of my life. Like, how can I be of service to Ohm? So that part is uh, where I get the most amount of satisfaction, to be honest. If you ask me the, the why or something. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts, you know, Nathan Latka and a few others and like some really prolific ones too. But like you take such a personable approach and you're building relationships. You have so many transactions you've created just with me and setting this up, creating buy-in, you know, where it, it didn't feel like a cold outreach at all, right? And you cut through the noise because you were real. I think there's a huge opportunity for us as people to take that same leap of faith that you've taken, we're like, this is the cost of doing business, but this is the outcome that I get because I transact and I get these relationships. And I don't know what I'll do with these relationships, but I know that they're inherently valuable. And I know that they feel that it's inherently valuable. It's basically what we we hope we're doing in, at work with our coworkers too. So a lot of the design work isn't the design work. It's this work. It is creating transactional value and building those deposits so that when you need to make the withdrawal, it feels healthy. Yeah. <laughs> 100%, 100% agree. Oh my God, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's like, I also want to say thank you, uh, Dr. O, for the therapy session. Uh, no, it goes both ways. It's fun to have these conversations and then have others be able to see these conversations that sometimes are just not really very visible or available uh, freely for people. Thank you so much, old man, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Thanks for having me. If you made it this far, you are what I call a Design MBA super fan. And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.